Mm. Okay. And Lord, I pray that you might add uh, understanding to the reading of your word. Uh, There's a famous photo that illustrates what John was saying about us being God's children and living as God's children in the passage that we had read today. Uh, It's not this one. This is not that famous. It's one that I took at Taumanu Reserve in Onihanga, uh, New Year's Eve uh, 2019. But I think it actually does talk a lot about uh, us as children of God uh, looking like uh, our Father. So... It's one of a series of photos that a Look magazine photographer took of John F. Kennedy sitting at the Resolute desk in the Oval Office, hard at work with the uh, worries of the world on his shoulders. But that's not the focus of the photo. Rather, the focus of the photo is JFK's young son, John Jr., who was the first child born to a sitting president in the 20th century. I think he's the only child born to a sitting president of the US uh, in the 20th century. But he's playing under the desk. The picture is called The Secret Door. And here it is. It's a great photo, isn't it? Constantine Campbell, a Bible commentator, writes of the connection between this photo and the passage that we had read out to us today. The President of the United States is not accessible to just anybody, and not just anyone can walk into the White House and walk into the Oval Office and sit under the Resolute Desk. And I guess that's one of the shocking things we saw at January the 6th, wasn't it? To see these pictures of the rioters sitting at people's desks or sitting uh, in in the speaker's place in, uh, in Congress. Not everybody has that ability to walk into the Oval Office and sit under the Resolute Desk. But John Jr. had free access to President Kennedy. Why? Because the President of the United States was his father. We know God as Father, and we have confidence in his presence. We have access to him. We know he accepts us and cherishes us. We know we have nothing to fear from him. He hears our prayers and uh, as we address him as our heavenly Father. Here's another photo from that sequence, and it might be just a bit easier to see. And it's a wonderful interplay between father and son, isn't it? And JFK's uh, wife, Jackie, did not approve of photos being taken of the, ch- of the children and then being used for publicity. But she was uh, conveniently overseas at the time that these photos were taken. And the photos were taken a few short weeks before uh, President Kennedy's last uh, tragic trip to Dallas, Texas. And it transpired that the photos were not published till after his death. Now there is another iconic photo taken of John Jr. On his third birthday, it's the day of his father's funeral. And he stands with his family and as his father's body parades past him, accompanied by US Marines, John Jr. snaps the salute that he'd been practicing with his father for months because they were going to go and visit the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington Cemetery. And you know, as John Jr. 
has grown up, many people comment just how much his, like his father he looks. There is a strong and striking family resemblance. Now, the church that John is writing his letter to was dealing with a splinter group and false teaching, which was making them feel more like the John Jr. at the funeral rather than the John Jr. playing under the resolute desk. Bereft and cut off, unsure of their relationship with God, questioning if they had really believed and were saved, ready to give it up. And John writes to reassure the church family, which he has great affection for, calling them his dear friends, calling them beloved. And he writes to them in this long passage that we had read out to us today. He uses the idea of family resemblance to help assure them that they are indeed God's beloved children. Not only that they are his beloved, but they are God's beloved as well. Not in a physical experience, ex, ex, appearance, not the, oh, you've got your mother's eyes, and oh, you've got your father's nose, not that kind of way, but how we live and love reflects the very character of God our Father. Now the passage starts at the end of chapter 2 where John encourages his readers to keep going, to continue in him, in Christ, so that they may be confident and unashamed before him. There's that encouragement for them to keep going despite all the problems, despite the fact that there's this opposition. Theologically, in the Reformed tradition, this is what we call the perseverance of the saints, that those who God has called and chosen are those who respond to the gospel and who persevere in the faith until the end. And he goes on in verse 29 to tell them to keep on in that relationship with to keep on in that relationship with Christ is to be people who will keep on reflecting God's character, God's goodness and righteousness in their lives. Not that we are going to be perfect, never that. Um, remember, uh, he had written that he'd, uh, he'd spoken against that in 1 John chapter 1, where he dismissed that as false teaching by saying. If we say we are without sin, we call God a liar. But if we confess our sin, then God is, do you know, faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's not that we can keep on sinning, but that we might change and we might walk in God's light. It is that we will continue in the process of growth and discipleship because of the relationship we have with God as our Father because of Jesus Christ. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, John tells them, he reiterates that they are born of God because of the great love that the Father, and this comes from the NIV, has lavished on them. That's, I love that word, lavished on them. It's not because of who we are, but who God is and what he has done through sending his son, Jesus Christ, that we are born again as God's children. Now, there's much debate over whether the writer of the epistle of John is the same as the writer of the gospel of John. But when you hear some of the words and phrases he uses, you, you, you just, it takes the doubt away. You can't help but hear the strong, resounding echoes 
of John's gospel. John 1, 12 and 13. To all who receive him, talking of Jesus Christ, to all who believe in his name, the word made flesh. He gave the right to become children of God, not born of natural descent nor human decision, but born of God. And of course, then Jesus replied to Nicodemus in, uh, in 1 John 3. Uh, you must be born again, not of the nat- natural birth, but of the spirit and water. It is because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The great love of God that has been lavished on us that we have been invited into this wonderful relationship with God as our Heavenly Father. It's the basis of the Christian faith that you and I have been invited into this relationship, being born as children of God because of what Christ has done for us. And John tells his listeners that the world may not recognize us as God's children now, but when he returns, we will be revealed. And John does not elaborate on what that will be like because, you see, the the biblical writers, Jesus' disciples, are very careful to only pass on what they know and what they have received from Christ. They don't speculate about things that God has not revealed to them. But he does say that when we see Christ, we will be like him, as we will see him as he is. Paul had argued in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's because of Jesus raised from the dead that we know what our resurrection bodies will be like. We've had a glimpse of that. But uh, you know we don't know the fullness of it. However, here John goes on to tell his readers that that likeness starts now. Not in a resurrection body kind of way, but in a new creation life kind of way. That we would have that family resemblance with God. John tells us as God's children that we should purify ourselves. That as Christ is righteous, that God is good and righteous and has come to forgive sin and destroy the the devil's works, we should turn from sin and live in a righteous life. And again, not trying to please God or earn our salvation or in keeping some set of laws, but because we're in that relationship with God, because that is a natural family resemblance. Just as much as some kids do end up, sadly, with their their father's noses. (laughs) You know, we are to, to end up reflecting the character and nature of God, that God is righteous. And so, that's that life of discipleship. The Spirit dwells within us and enables that to happen. So naturally, that's going to show itself in how we live. There is going to be that family resemblance. And John illustrates that here by talking of two families who have two different fathers. If we keep on sinning, if we keep on doing things that displease God, it's obvious our father is not God but the devil. If our life changes, if we follow and personify Jesus who dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, then it shows that God is our Father. You know, and I don't think we're that comfortable with the idea of people who sin being the children of the devil. But I think as John uses that image, I think that it it tells us just about how, how damaging to the human being that sin is. And it makes us stop and think about our lives and how we live. And I know last week, Lorne gave people a sort of a discipleship kind of uh, thing to have a look through. 
but it asks us to look at our family resemblance. Not because we want to keep some set of rules or regulations, but because of that great love that God has lavished on us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor who was martyred by the Nazis in the dying days of the Second World War, famously talked of a concept called cheap grace. Cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field, and for the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price uh, to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for those whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. And John is very clear that true belief in Jesus Christ results in a changed life, a life of discipleship, that ongoing process of seeing where we are at and uh, being in need of God's forgiveness, repenting, from our sin, turning around and choosing to go a different way and opening ourselves up to God's transforming power and love. In Hebrews 12, 7, the writer to the Hebrews says that that ongoing dis discipline, that ongoing discipline of God is in actual fact a sign of God's ongoing love for us because it is a sign that God is our parent. The life changed is a sign of that family resemblance. The second family resemblance that John talks about is that we love one another. And again, we can't hear this without the echoes of Jesus in John's gospel. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. And again, to make his point, John gives us two alternatives. Love for one another and its opposite, which is hate. One, he says, is life-giving, the other is deadly. The example that John gives of one is Cain in the Old Testament, whose hatred for his brother, even though his brother had done no wrong, leads him to commit the first murder. And Jesus, who loved, whose love for us led him to lay down his life for us. And there's echoes in that of Jesus' teaching on anger in the Sermon on the Mount where he equates being angry with someone as killing them. Just as meeting people's physical needs is love in action, murder is hatred in action. And as God's children, as people who have experienced the lavish, great love of God, the forgiveness of God, we are to show that to each other. And the passage goes on to talk of love not in terms of simply feelings, you know, that uh, you probably remember back to your... Uh, days of courting. For some people, that's a long time ago. <laughs> you know, when you're on the phone and it was just that sort of feeling that you felt when you'd never felt that feeling you felt before. And, you know, you had that long time of, well, you hang up the phone. No, you hang up the phone. No. Okay, let's hang up the phone together on the count of three. One, two, three. You didn't hang up. Neither did you. It's not that. 
It's not just the words, you know? I mean, it's not just the, I love you, as a way of sort of saying, I don't want to deal with that, you know what I mean? But it's an actual fact done in actions. Passage goes on to talk of, in terms not, of not simply feelings or just words, but love that is expressed in genuine and very practical terms. Now, I preached about this, this passage about well over 20 years ago at St. John's in Rotorua. And I young, asked a young artist in the church to do four cartoons for me uh, that perhaps illustrated what John was talking about when he talks about this love for one another. One was uh, the row of the backs of the heads of people sitting in church. You know, the love of God calls us to get past simply seeing the back of each other's heads in church. You know, it calls us past that. The next was uh, people hiding behind the Bible in a small group. Now, doing, they were doing, they, to get beyond just doing Bible study together. Now, Bible study is of paramount importance um, because it's, we change as we open ourselves up to the Word of God by the Spirit. But, you know, the important thing is to just simply get beyond that to doing life together. The third was a closed door. The love Jesus is talking of about calls us to go beyond the doors of each other's houses and to be hospitable and openly sharing with each other. And the last one was a zip being opened. And uh, I think that there were people who were a bit concerned about what I was going to say. But I assured them that it was the zips of our wallets that show how much we're willing to love one another. You know, it shows you how deep we're prepared to dip into our pockets to help one another, to help those who are in need. And you know, not many of us will be called to lay down our lives as Jesus was, but the call to love one another is a call to lay aside self-interest for the good of the other people, for the common good. And in conclusion, in verse 19, John ties all this together to reassure his listeners that they are indeed the children of God that we can be assured and be at rest in that. It is because of what Christ has done for us and is expressed in how we live. We may find our hearts being troubled and concerned and worried about who we are and where we are at with God. I don't know. We all seem to, to, to wrestle with that, don't we, sometime? Am I good enough for God? Does God really love me? You know, I even prayed one time, you know, God, do you? I don't really deserve your grace. And... Uh, and, and I heard the answer back, that's kind of the idea of grace, Howard. And I go, oh, of course, yeah. But I still feel that way, you know. But John says, God is greater than our hearts. It's not about our emotions, how we feel, but it's the truth of the gospel. You know, it's the truth of the gospel. This is God's command to us, that we believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another. Uh, you know, that is the way in which we can see whether or not we're God's children. And in this, we hear Jesus' answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. How do we best love the Lord, love God, who has lavished his love on us? Well, we believe in his son Jesus Christ, and we love one another. It's as simple and as costly as all that. 
That confidence, John tells us, means that we can ask God anything and he will give it to us. We have that open access to God as our Father. That's not a blank check, by the way. It's not God as credit card. Rather, it's because as we are loved by God and we grow in that relationship with him that our hearts will be attuned to God's desires and purposes. So we will ask him what is attuned with his uh, purposes. The final assurance John gives is that those who keep his commands that God lives in, that, that live, live in him because he lives in them by the Holy Spirit. You know, we're not standing alone and bereft, alienated from God like John Jr. at the uh, funeral. And you know, we're not even simply playing under the resolute desk. Rather, in the midst of our lives, Christ dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that leads us into all truth and enables us and empowers us to love one another. Let's pray. Loving God, we want to thank you very much for the love that you have lavished on us. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his giving of himself for us. We thank you that you have sent your promised Holy Spirit to dwell within us to lead us into all truth, to enable and empower us to know your love for us and to share that love with the people around us. We thank you that we are your children. We thank you that you call us to live out that family resemblance in our life by, by becoming more and more like you and showing more and more your love for other people. In Jesus' name, amen.